Well, it's Saturday night and I just got paid. Fool about my money, don't try to save. My heart say go, go. Have a time for Saturday night. Now I feel it fine. I'm on a rock it up. I'm on a rip it up. I'm on a shake it up. Go ball it up. I'm on a rock it up. And ball tonight. episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California and created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Bob, and Jared. Aloe was created as a place to treat addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. They treat dual diagnosis, including severe mental illness. They have years and years and years of experience taking good care of addicts and giving them a safe and comfortable detox, which we all know is crucial when kicking uh, the kind of drugs we come off of. They have amenities that uh, sound amazing. It would put a spa to shame, including sound bath meditation, equine therapy, fucking the uber spiritual sweat lodge, and even surfing. If you're fucked and you're looking for a great place to get clean, I strongly recommend aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of the Dopey Patreon page. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And the Patreon page has really been coming alive, so I want to thank everybody who's throwing down a couple bucks. But we are coming with the content all of a sudden. We are up to Dopey Patreon number six, with uh, a bunch of Dopey Nation people so far. This week was with Laura on her first day of recovery. It's pretty cool. I would totally check it out. Kick down a few bucks. If you kick down a minimum of two bucks, you will get a free Dopey decal. 
Um, and Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll, the inventor of the dopey uh, decal, will be shipping it to you. So, yeah, kick down to Patreon. It helps with the show, and I really appreciate it. Also, there's new shirts available at www.dopeypodcast.com. We do it with this company called SRO Prints, which is a company all of um, recovering heroin addicts. So uh, order a shirt. You'll be helping a bunch of heroin addicts, and you'll be getting a cool dopey shirt. Also, I still have a few hats and a bunch of stickers. If you want anything, hit me up, um, and I will get them to you. Enough with the ads. Here is the fucking show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I'm here on the phone with my good friend, Ray. Welcome back to the show, Ray. Hi, Dave. Nice to be back. It's always good to have Ray, even just on the phone. And uh, so what's going on with you? How's, how's the medication settling? What's new with, in the world of Ray? I'm, I'm not feeling anything from the medication yet, but I, the jitters went away, but... Um... And I also want to say I put on some pants just to talk to you because I felt weird being in my underwear. <laughs> I'm assuming normally when we talk, you're in your underwear, though. So what's the no, deal? No, I'm, I'm always dressed. I'm just I'm sitting here in the sunshine. I'm sunbathing inside my apartment. Very nice. And um, there's a lot to talk about today, but I want to start with the news you told me this morning. Why don't you tell the Dopey Nation? Uh, I got a new sponsor. I spoke with him for about 45 minutes last night. And it went really well. Um, he seems pretty, um, uh, has very good recovery. And uh, he described what his sponsorship would be like with him. And it all sounded good. And he asked if I was on any medication. And I told him I just started sertraline. And he asked if I would be willing to go off of that. And I said, I'm planning on going off of it at the end of the summer. And he was good with that. He asked if about my uh, love life and little he does he if, know how <laughs> the scope of that question. <laughs> I told him uh, he asked if I would be willing to cool everything off for until we reach the ninth step, which could be nine months. And I said yes. Ray, let me and, ask you something. When yeah. was, when was the last time you were celibate for nine months? Mm. When I was ten, wow, ten. So you, 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 your first sex was at eleven. Yeah. Oh Jesus. Anyway. Yeah. So, and what do you think about this? Uh, his thing that you have to wait nine months before you, uh, you get back out there to your, your, your obsessive sex finding ways. Well, you know what? I, I'm willing to put my trust in him, and you know I've never done that before, and I know that's a thing that you're supposed to do. And I just I said to my last sponsor like that is not an option, and and it didn't work out for me. And um, I told him I'd gone through the steps, and I stopped drinking. I was going to meetings, and I stopped drinking, but I did not feel anything from going through the steps. I didn't feel anything that people talk about. They get out of the steps. I did them, but I didn't get the the glow or the the effects that people talk about i didn't at all so you're talking and, about you're talking about that you are now showing willingness to do what the sponsor suggests in order to have a spiritual experience from the 12 steps yeah 
Yeah, I never got that before. And I, I got, like, just talking to him, I was like, this is the dude. Like, this guy really has it. I'm not, nothing against my old sponsor, but, like, this is, this guy's, this guy's approach is different. And I'm willing. I was, I was not happy. And he told me at 15 years, he had, he never, when he went through the steps first, he didn't have that. And 15 years into it, he got a new sponsor who is his current sponsor. And he went through the steps and he had that experience. And he's like, I do, I do it like my sponsor did it with me. And I don't know. I just, at that moment, I'm like, you know, whatever fate has led me to talking to you, I'm going to trust. Well, look at that, Ray. You're putting, you're showing faith and willingness. This could be the dawning of a new day. Very, I'm very excited. And, uh, you know, I think my sponsor had a similar experience as your sponsor where he, uh, he found a different sponsor to work the steps. And I, and I, I think that's exciting, but uh, we don't want the shit. What are you going to say? You, you had it too. Like you, you went to meetings, you did the steps and it didn't work for you. And then you did it again and it worked. Yeah. Well, I did it with somebody who I shouldn't have done it with. And then I did it with somebody who I really enjoy doing it with. And it worked out. It's like yeah. anything. It's, it's like, and, and nothing is, is definite and, and nothing, um, and nothing is guaranteed. You don't know how things are going to work together or how, if you're going to pay attention or what your brain is going to respond to. And all that stuff is, is a little bit random. I think getting sober, uh, can be totally random. Like you don't know what's going to happen, why, what, how is going to click, you know? Yeah. No, I just, I just went with it in the moment. Like he started talking and I'm like, I'm down with this. I, this is, I don't know. I felt like it was fate that like, Suddenly, this this guy was saying this uh, on a Zoom room to me, and um, I was willing to do it. Well, I'm I'm very very excited for you, but I don't want I don't want our show to become some weird culty recovery show. So, <laughs> so let's move it along. Um, terrible news this week. It was actually last Saturday that the uh, the architect of rock and roll, the great uh, Little Richard, died at age 92. Were you a Little Richard fan, Ray? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. You know, I, I kept saying every time somebody would die recently, I'd be like, how is Prince dead and Little Richard is still alive? Or how is, you know, whoever, like Tom Petty dead and Little Richard is still alive? But I'd read that Little Richard was like holed up in a, a, ho- a hotel in Nashville. Like he hadn't left in quite a few years. He hadn't left his room. Well, he was old and dying. And, he, and unlike Tom Petty and uh, Prince, he wasn't doing fentanyl. So that that gave him a a leg up. Now I'm going to play a quick Little Richard clip on some of his forays into drugs. Hold on. I started with just a little marijuana. Somebody said, try it, you like it. A little dab would do it. I got my dab. I went from marijuana to angel dust. And boy, I want to tell you that the angels had nothing to do with that dust. Mm Mm-hmm. I smoked that angel dust and it had me paranoid. It had me hallucinating. I went from angel dust to all types of pills, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of pills. Then I started drinking all kinds of liquors. Then I went into cocaine. I, I, I used to take so much cocaine to my nose was big enough to park diesel trucks in. And that was the great little Richard. And I'm, I'm just a huge fan of his music. Um, it- I didn't know Little Richard had like a drug problem. I I'd read some white wild sex orgy stuff, but I didn't know he had a thing with drugs. Oh yeah, he was a terrible drug addict. I'm gonna read you quickly because I I love Little Richard's music. I love Little Richard's music more than anything. I loved Have his. You seen? I, I do um, Little Richard medleys on Facebook Live on the piano. 
No, I haven't seen it. Do you know that Little Richard was uh, was Bob Dylan's first inspiration? Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm gonna that. I'm gonna quickly read some interesting facts about Little Richard that I found. One, he had an orgy with Buddy Holly, maybe. And here's the quote: One time, Buddy came into my dressing room while I was jacking off with Angel sucking my titty. Angel had the fastest tongue in the West. She was doing that to me, and Buddy took out his thing. She opened up her legs, and he put it in her. He was having sex with Angel. I was jacking off, and Angel was sucking me. When they introduced his name on stage, he finished and went (laughs) to the stage, still fastening himself up. I'll never forget that. He came and went. Angel disputed this account. I knew Buddy, but I didn't know I knew Buddy that well, she said. He says, then Bill, then uh, Little Richard went on to say he had a lot of other orgies, too. So did you, Ray. I just heard that you have a lot of orgies, too. <laughs> but besides that, he said, um, uh, lots of group sex. He said, I remember one night we had this wonderful orgy going. It was one of the best things I had ever been to. And in the middle of this orgy that, that was just fantastic, someone knocked on my door. I said, just a moment. This is an orgy. Um, he identified himself as omnisexual. He loved voyeurism. One of Richard's other kinks was watching others, a habit that got him in hot water a few times. In one instance in 1955, he got caught into a car watching a couple fuck and spent three days in jail. In 1984, that he'd oversee his bandmates during their orgies. I used to love to watch people having sex with my bandmen. They should have called me Richard the Watcher, he said. <laughs> He also masturbated constantly. Everybody used to tell me that I should get a trophy for it. I did it so much, I used to be a professional jack offer. I would do it just to be doing something. Seven, eight times a day, he said in the bite book. But he still said he had sex with less people than you, Ray. He said his number was only 4,100. Anyway, he gifted people his own excrement. Oh, my God. On a few occasions, (laughs) Richard would take a dump in a box or other receptacle and give it as a present. He did this to his own mother as well as an elderly female neighbor. She wanted to know. She wanted to know what I had brought her. She said, "Eh, let's see what Richard has brought for me. And then I just heard, ah, I'm going to kill him. All right. That's disgusting. Disgusting. He once quit music because of Sputnik. That's a, a, a very famous story. Do you know that story? Uh, when he threw his, his jewels in the river? Yes, in the, in, I think in the ocean. Anyway, yep. it was in the late 50s, and he was on tour in Australia, and the Russian satellite flew over, and, uh, and he was sure... What does he say? He says... This big light came over, and it was frightening to me. I told the guys I was with in Australia, I am coming out of this business, he told GQ. I have always feared that the world was going to end. We got on a ferry, and I said, well, if you don't believe, I'm going to stop. And he was talking about homosexual sex. He says, I'll throw all my diamonds in the ocean. And then he threw all of his diamonds into the ocean. After that 1957 incident, Richard spent a few years out of the music business, traveling the country, as a preacher and marrying Ernestine Harvin, um, a union that would only last into the early 60s around the time he was arrested in 1962 for a homosexual encounter in a bus station's men's room. What do you think hmm. about that? Um, yeah, he, he had a lot of, like, threesomes with that wife, too. He would use the, his wife to, to like, kind of entice men. Right, as a, as a magnet. He, 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 you know, it was around the 50s, and he was sure that God... 
uh, wasn't happy with him being gay. Uh, but yeah. let's move through this. Number eight, he fired Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was his sideman. Hendrix learned countless lessons as a sideman for Little Richard in the mid-60s, but the guitarist's ways on stage and off clashed with his band leader. Accounts vary to the reason Richard let him go. Uh, maybe it was constant lateness, too much showmanship, money, unrequited sexual advances. Uh, but their brief collaboration did include at least one recording session, which produced the gospel-tinged, I don't know what you've got, but it's got me. I heard that he didn't like that Jimmy would show him up playing behind his head and stuff. What did you hear? Yeah, that, that's what I've heard. Um, number nine, he got spiritual counseling from Bob Dylan. Rumor has it that Dylan inspired Richard to convert to Judaism, a subject on which the latter musician had always been coy. Although he did attend synagogue, celebrated the religion's holidays, and observed its Friday Sabbath. No matter what, Dylan did at least serve as a healing presence after Richard nearly died in a car accident. And this is what little Richard said about Dylan. I feel Bob Dylan is my blood brother. Blood brother. I believe if I didn't have a place to stay, Dylan would buy me a house. He sat by my bed. He didn't move for hours. I was in pain. That medicine wouldn't stop. My tongue was cut out, leg all tore up, bladder punctured. I was supposed to be dead six feet under. God resurrected me, and that's the reason I have to tell the world about it. He was literally a snake oil salesman. He would go from <laughs> town to town uh, selling snake oil. Uh he says he would go into towns, have all the black people come around and tell them that the snake oil was good for everything. But he was lying. Snake oil. I was helping him lie. Um, he would play piano and sing Caledonia. Uh, and then, of course, he developed a, uh, a terrible drug problem. He was a teetotaler in his early career, but he entered the world of alcohol and drugs with the same gusto that he did music, dabbling with marijuana, cocaine, PCP, heroin, LSD, and more. I, also, I was also blowing about $1,000 of cocaine a day, he told people. When I'd blow my nose, blood and flesh would come out on my handkerchief. After professional setbacks and personal tragedies, including the loss of his brother from a heart attack in the 70s, he eventually got clean. Um, I love uh, Little Richard. And, um, yeah, me too. I remember... Hold on for a sec. I remember when I was, um, you know, deep on drugs, VH1 did one biopic after the next and uh and the little richard biopic was awesome did you ever see it no i've 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 watched a lot of stuff about him though and uh do you know about esquiville <clears throat> tell me about it esquiville was a dude who predates little richard that little richard like uh he influenced little richard he had that similar style similar like sexuality similar haircuts and you know not as good as little richard but little richard obviously studied him Right. And then the, my favorite thing I learned about him was that his biggest hit, Tutti Frutti, was definitely about anal sex. Oh, uh, yeah. Tutti Frutti, good booty. Yes. The lyrics If were, it's tight, it's all right. If don't, it's all sexual. He had to change it. What I hear, this is what I got for it. He says, uh, Tutti Frutti, good booty. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it. Make it easy. Good yeah. booty was eventually changed to all Rudy. Which all Rudy, which is slang for all right, and uh, the woman at the, um, the it was like the woman who was the secretary of the record label changed the lyrics. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, like I love Little Richard's music, but my point was that when I used to get high on heroin, I would watch those VH1 biopics 
over and over and over. And um, that little, and then when I would kick, I would watch him too. And I loved the Little Richard one. So I, I strongly recommend it. And the, the story behind Long Tall Sally is just as insane as Tutti Frutti. What's that story? It's, um, <clears throat> it's not written by him or co-written. This little girl, like 11 years old, came up to him and said, I've written a song. Maybe you can play it. And it was like Long Tall Sally built for speed. She's got everything Papa John needs. Uncle John it, needs. Uncle John needs. And he's like, all right. <clears throat> but it worked. Oh, that song is so good. I think I'm I'm opening this the show with uh, Little Richard Rip It Up, which I love. Um, oh, good. And um, I had always dreamed of having Little Richard on the show. Of course, that's never going to happen. But uh, Little Richard, thank you for everything you ever did for rock and roll. Rock and roll would not be rock and roll without you. And uh, may you rest in peace. And uh, if you're young out there and you'd never heard it, I mean, I guess I bet Little Richard just sounds like old music, but it's so vital, right, Ray? Um, yeah, but I wonder if it sounds like old music to a young person or if it still sounds like wild and crazy. Well, young people, listen to Little Richard, listen to Rip It Up, and uh, and write in an email. They're going to write that we're old and stupid. <laughs> um, now, on the last Patreon episode, I did my review for that psychedelic movie. I don't remember what it's called, though. Do you remember what it's called? It's Have a Good Trip. Have a Good Trip on Netflix. And, Ray, you watched that movie. What, what was your take? I loved it. I thought it was great. And I loved Carrie Fisher and Sting and uh, um, uh, what's his name? Son. Um, Timothy Leary's son. Timothy Leary's son was great. And it's kind. it was kind of like dopey light, really. It was, all, you know, it was funny stories. Every story, like, had a happy ending, I think. And it was fun. I I liked it and I hated it at the same time. I think I might have hated it because I felt like it was a lot like Dopey. Yeah, you were jealous. I might have been a little jealous. I think Sting would be a massive Dopey guest. I hated Sarah Silverman. I hated all the <laughs> fucking bad comedians who were like, don't look in the mirror, man. Yeah. I hated that shit. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I loved psychedelics. I, I love... Um, I just love psychedelics in general, and I feel like they handled it in a very kitschy and annoying way, which pissed me off. Yeah, um, it was like mass market appeal. I think they could have done that movie and treated it like like, a, like if Ken Burns did a psychedelic documentary, it just would have been way better. Yeah. Uh, but the point you know, is... I, I loved psychedelics, too, for like a period of time, and then I reached... I don't know, age 27 or something. And I'm like, I can never imagine doing that again. The thought of taking acid is so terrifying to me now, but I loved it. So you don't, you don't consider ecstasy a psychedelic? No. It's very psychedelic though. Yeah, but you don't freak out and trip out. And, you trip you know. out. You just have a nice trip. You, know? <laughs> you, don't, you don't meet the devil. Right. Did you ever meet the devil on a trip? I can't hear you. Did you ever meet the devil in a trip? I went to a hell-like place. Right. You know, I was watching the movie with Linda, and um, and they're talking about, like, DMT, ayahuasca, and all that stuff. And Linda, like, you know, she wanted to go on an ayahuasca retreat, and she's like, don't you want to take ayahuasca? And, like, I would like to take ayahuasca, but I cannot risk like my recovery. I just can't risk it. That's all I was thinking about this morning. Like I, I used to like to, to eat acid and I like to eat mushrooms and I loved ecstasy and I loved DMT, but like 
I would hate to turn on the switch and then be fucked, you know? Right. And then want to take heroin to like make those feelings go away. Well, what it is is that every time I ever tripped at the end of the trip or in the middle of the trip, the edgy feeling would get to me and I would smoke as much pot as I possibly could. Yeah. Um, which I loved. I loved tripping out and smoking a ton of weed at the same time. Um, I, I liked it, but I, whenever I did anything that was edgy, I needed to come down immediately. Um, when Robin Quivers went to Peru and took ayahuasca, yes. she said she saw the blueprint of the world or the blueprint of the universe. And that just sent a chill down my spine. I'm like, I do not want to see the blueprint. No, it's in a good way. It's not in a bad way. It just sounded so scary. I used to have experiences like that. And I, I just feel like those experiences are like nestled in my consciousness and I feel fine about them. And I don't think that when I get older, I'm going to need to revisit psychedelic land, but who knows? You never know. I have no, I have no reservation for that shit. Now I want to tell you a story that I think you're going to think is funny. Um, but I need to remove like, okay, I'm not going to say where it came from or this will become a lost episode. But the other day I was coming upstairs and, uh, and Linda showed me, that um, one of, we'll say, my relatives had sent uh, Nora a handcrafted box. And I was like, cool, right? So, yeah. I, so I look at the box, and it's this beautiful handcrafted wooden box, but it totally looks like a fucking dildo. <laughs> like, it totally looks like a fucking dildo. It's smooth, <laughs> and it's like it's not, like, massive, it's like, I don't know, five inches, but it's fat and round. You know what I'm saying? Oh, wait, it's a, it's a box? It's, and you, it's hollow. You can open it up, and there's a box in it. And I just look at it, and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm so upset that, that this thing got sent to Nora. And I just stopped. I, I just like, I, I said, this is not right. And, I, and Linda didn't want me to get angry, so we just kind of didn't talk about it again. And then um, last weekend, we went out uh, with Linda and her mother, and I started telling her mother about it. And her mother was just shocked. She just couldn't believe that this had happened. And, uh, and she wound up coming to the yard for Mother's Day, and she's like, can I show you the, can you, can you show me the box? <laughs> so I bring the box out, and she goes, no, this is like, I'm sure it's a box used to hold pencils. And I was like, the box isn't big enough to hold pencils. And she goes, it's like a paperclip box. And I was like, it's not a fucking paperclip box. <laughs> and, and she opens it and it hits me. It just looks like a dildo designed to hold drugs. I said, Sue, this is a fucking dildo designed to hold drugs. She goes, no, you put it on your desk. You could put push pins in it. I said, Sue, the only thing that you're going to put in this box is weed or pills <laughs> or heroin. It's a fucking dildo to hold drugs. And she like, she just died laughing. But I figured if I did not tell the story on Dopey, I would never forgive myself. That's great. You send me a picture of this box. I gave it to Sue. <laughs> I gave it to Sue. And then Sue Sue says to Linda, she goes, does Dave really think it's a box used to hold drugs? Um, a dildo used to hold drugs? It, it, I don't know what the guy was thinking. Like, there's got to be something wrong with his brain. I swear. Um, he, bought, he bought this or made it? He made it. And he sent it to my 10-year-old daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible, right? Yeah. So today on the show, it's a, it's a it's a pretty dense, action packed show. We have uh, Michael Alago, whom you are familiar. 
Um, and, and then we have my roommate from college. Uh, and Michael Alago, and this is just a heads up to Nora, not my daughter Nora, but no diversity in the dopey nation, Nora. Michael Alago happens to be Puerto Rican and gay. So what do you think about that, Ray? That's good. It is good. And then I got this voicemail from a woman in the dopey nation who wanted to comment on Nora Smith's thing. Uh, do you want to hear it? Because it also connects to the Little Richard uh, shit in a box story. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's right, hear it. Here we go. Hello, Dopey Nation. Hello, Dave. This is Monique dropping in a voice memo. Um, I f- felt compelled to do so after someone was complaining about the lack of diversity. I am a proud black person, proud member of the Dopey Nation. Um, here's the thing about addiction. You know, it's like the great equalizer. It doesn't matter. Race isn't relevant in this conversation. At least it's not to me. And I found the Dopey Nation to be, hands down, the most inclusive community, the most inclusive space that exists in all of the internet. So if anybody has problems with diversity when it comes to Dopey Nation, and they're not getting it, they're not getting what everyone's doing here. They're not getting what Dave, what you're doing here. Um, so now to the story. <laughs> All right, I'll hit you with some dopey. This story is a it's a who done it. It's a drug story mystery. So this goes um, this goes way back. This goes back to like the the happier days of my using. Although I wouldn't say that any of them were really happy, but I was pretty much consequence free. I was living in my uh, first apartment out of college on the Bowery. And this was like before the Bowery was like anything, (laughs) anything nice, anything like fancy or charming. Um, I remember one time I had this, uh, this comforter that I would just like, I would just pee the bed. Like every time I drank, I would pee the bed. And I had this like one night stand. And of course I got drunk, peed the bed. And the guy like before he left was just like, you need to get rid of this comforter, which I did. He never spoke to me again, but I got rid of the comforter. And uh, a few days later, I saw this homeless person outside of my apartment sleeping with it. So this was, this was where I lived. Anyway, um, I had a few friends coming into town from college and I had like, I was so beat up from the night before that I like couldn't really come meet them. I was just like staying at home, smoking tons and tons of weed. And then it finally got late enough and I figured, you know, they're probably wasted. They're probably starting to like make moves to get some Coke. I think it's time for me to meet up with them. So I go and I meet up with them, but they're like, they're all so far gone. Like they were past the point of making any types of cocaine plans. Like it was just a shit show. Um, and so some of them wanted to come back and, and crash at my apartment. And one of the guys was like trying to hook up with this girl. So I gave him like a spare key and I went back with, uh, one of my friends, Dave, we go, we go to bed. Um, and I had a roommate who was like a normie and she had her boyfriend who like wasn't much of a drinker. He was just like a straight up, up and down pothead. And so they're sleeping in her room. I go to sleep in my bed and my friend Dave goes to sleep on the couch. 
And then I wake up in the morning, and my other friend who I gave the spare key to like isn't there. I go to use the bathroom. I come out, and the guy Dave on the couch is like, Monique, what? Like, what is that smell? And I'm just like, oh, like half asleep. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. We lived like in the middle of Chinatown. Ah, there. I was like, there's always people like cooking things at like crazy times of the day. Like sometimes the smells are great and sometimes the smells are not so great. And so I just like chalked it up to like somebody cooking some mysterious Chinese food and just told them to go back to sleep. And I did the same. And then a few more hours pass and I come back outside and I'm like, oh my God, like what is that smell? And I walk over to the kitchen and there is this like perfectly coiled poop just like this magnificent poop on the middle of the kitchen floor I've never seen anything like it (laughs) and I'm like oh my god dude like there's poop on the kitchen and then he like comes and he looks and he's just like who did that and I'm like, I didn't do it. I'm thinking, like, I didn't even really get that fucked up last night, right? Like, could it be me? I don't think so. It wasn't me. And he's like, it wasn't me. And I'm thinking, like, my roommate and her boyfriend, like, they don't get, like, that kind of wasted. Like, it can't be them. And then we're like, oh, like, it must be the dude who I gave the spare key to. So we call him up. Like, we're like, maybe he pooped and dashed. And then we like come up and he's like, no, I never made it back. I ended up hooking up with that girl. And I'm like, who made this poop? You know, I still don't know the answer. Years and years have gone by and I don't know who pooped on the kitchen floor, whose magnificent coil poop was on the floor. And the best part of this story is like every couple of years, I'll get this like realization. I'll just be like, it was me. It must have been me. And then I'm like, nah, 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 it couldn't be me. And then a couple more years go by. I'm like, was it me? Did I do the poop? Did I? Was it me? So mystery unsolved. That's all I got. Thanks, Dopey Nation. Thank you, Dave. I have so much love in my heart for all of you. Dave, please, please keep this up. Don't listen to the haters. Uh, We love you. And that's all I got. Stay strong and toodles for Chris. So there you go. You see, Monique says that it doesn't matter what race you are if you're an addict. We are all, you know, one people is what Monique said. You heard that, Ray? Yeah, yeah. I think I... I think I'd seen Monique in the Zoom room, I think. She is a proud black woman. And thank you, Monique, mm-hmm. for setting the record straight. And Dopey is not about race. It's about addiction and dumb shit and drugs and Ray. Right, Ray? Yeah. So coming up next, we have New York City's own Michael Alago. And he's Puerto Rican. Nora, if that's your real <laughs> name. Anything you want to add, Ray, before we play Michael Alago? No. Actually, say goodbye to the Dopey Nation because you're done on this show. That's it for Ray. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. Did you have a good time? Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Ray. And here's Michael Ilago. I was very excited to actually meet this guest in person. He is a a, basically a standout of the New York music scene, a I don't even want to ruin his story. I just want to introduce him. He is the fabulous Michael Alago. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And 
I was so excited because you are a friend of John Joseph's. And when John, jo- John Joseph came to my father's house in Chelsea to record, and he was like, you know who you need on the show is fucking Michael Alago. And, um, and then, you know, we had it set up, but then this terrible COVID shit came through, and, uh, and we weren't able to do it in person. But welcome to the show. On That's the phone. correct. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here in my self-quarantine Chelsea apartment. Oh, shoot. So we're, we're, you're, you're probably very close to where we would have recorded anyway. So we're, we're there in spirit. And Michael just put yes, out... I'm on, I'm on uh, 17th Street and 8th Avenue. Yeah, my dad's on 27th and 8th, and I grew up on 27th. Oh, I love 8th. it. Yeah. Cool. So um, Michael just came out with a book called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. And, of course, he has a great documentary out about him that I watched that I loved called um, Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. And I'm so excited because, Michael, you are an old-school New York City guy. I certainly am. I certainly am. And just, by the way, I'm just going to interrupt for one second and just say that uh, the book, I Am Michael Alago, is available on Amazon.com right now. It's been out two weeks. And uh, Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago has been renewed again on Netflix. And we just got started on Amazon Prime Video. That's awesome. I, 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 because I have these two kids, I haven't been able to dive into the book as much as I'd like. The movie I could cram into my late nights, and the movie is amazing. I, I just like where it starts. Michael Lago, Puerto Rican kid growing up in the middle of Hasidic Central in Borough Park, Brooklyn, right? Gay. And gay. At the top of that, he's gay. So, uh, so who would have thought? Did you feel like an outsider in in Borough Park uh, around the Hasids, or what was it, it like? It was so it's so funny. Uh, who know who who would have thought? Like. Uh, a Puerto Rican family, meaning me, my mom Blanche, and my sister Cheryl, would wind up in Borough Park amongst amongst all the Hasidics. But we did. It was fine. Um, you know, if you just went over another. Uh, Part of Brooklyn, there was Bay Ridge and then Bensonhurst, and it all got very Guido and very Italian. And uh, so I was always in all of those neighborhoods. I remember under Newtrick Avenue on 86th Street, there was a clothing store called The Farm. And, you know, that's where you went to get your elephant bell bottoms and marshmallow shoes and all this stuff. So, you know... I, I don't know. I don't know if I fit in. I don't know if I didn't fit in. I had friends and... Um, I was never awkward about who I was. So, um, I don't know. It just all kind of worked out living in Brooklyn. I think that's one of the, that's one of the best things about New York city in general. I work at Katz's deli and, uh, and I'm Jewish and everybody at Katz's is Dominican and you, it's just being a part of another person's culture and kind of like learning their culture and them learning yours. It's, it's what makes New York so special. I think. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And, and you came up in one of the most exciting times in New York City. I was a little kid in the late 70s in New York, but obviously uh, I'm a huge fan of the music and the culture, and the scene just seemed insane. It was absolutely insane. I was a young person of about, oh boy, 15 years old, 16 years old, and I was making my way on the B train to Manhattan, um, late at night uh, to see shows. Um, 
I think one of the first times I went to CBGB was because my friend Leslie from New Haven, Connecticut, took me there, and I saw Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers when Richard Hell was still in the band, which wasn't for a long period of time. And that, plus knowing about this newspaper, The Village Voice, which was a weekly publication. Uh, it had music, art, theater, porn, politics. I loved it all except for the politics part. I couldn't <laughs> care less. <laughs> and, and that newspaper helped inform even more of my listening because I saw those ads in there for Great Gilder Sleeves and Max's Kansas City and CBGB and the variety of rock clubs and bars that were happening back then. Right. And what drew you to this crazy punk rock scene? I loved music coming out of the womb. And there was nothing else that I felt that passionate about what, other than music. So I, as a young person, I would watch American Bandstand. I would watch Don Kirshner's Midnight Special. I would watch Soul Train. And one got to hear and see a variety of types of artists on these shows, from Aretha Franklin to David Bowie to Grand Funk Railroad to Todd Rundgren uh, to Kiss, all this stuff. So at an early age, I was my ears were hearing all this great stuff, and I, I, I was attracted to it. Um, so fast forward a little bit, uh, once I knew about that there was an up-and-coming scene in the 70s in New York on the Bowery, scary place back then, I wanted to be part of it. And coming into the city with my little green knapsack and my Minolta camera, I had no fear. I had no idea where that came from, but maybe it was being naive, whatever. I just wanted to go where the music was. I think you were fearless because you were a gay Puerto Rican dude that grew up in a Hasidic community. What do you have and to be right. afraid of? And, 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 don't, and don't F with me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, don't fuck with Michael Alago, exactly. There you, there you go. John Joseph says it in the documentary. Yeah, he says it with conviction, too. He doesn't just say it. He, he says it with serious conviction. Well, there you go. And, and that scene was ripe with uh, with drugs, but I guess every scene at that point was ripe with drugs, right? Sure. Um, at that very early age, I didn't do drugs at all. I just definitely drank a lot, caused a lot of fights, <laughs> and not always fights, but uh, you know, I got a little too loose sometimes, you know. And uh, but it was it was incredible getting to see bands at the very early stage of them performing, like going to CBs and seeing the Ramones do like 25 songs in 15 minutes or right. 18 minutes, you know, seeing Patti Smith and television and Talking Heads and Blondie and all of these people at the very early stages of their career in a small place like CBs. In the end, CBGB from like 1975 until they closed their doors October 15, 2006, that was my home away from home. And Hilly Crystal, the owner, always said to us young people, because we were never carded, I have no idea why. I was 16, I looked 12. He said, if I see you with alcohol, I'm booting you out. It was almost like a two-week suspension. So we used to hide the beer and everything in the back alleyway, and we would drink and then come back in, so we never had any liquor in our hands. It was really a, 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 an incredible time. 
an well, awesome time. It's an amazing. It's like every teenager can talk about their scene as being cool, but your scene was fucking CBGBs in the late seventies with Blondie and Patti Smith and Talking Heads Listen, and Ramones. And I forgot to just say the Dead Boys, man. They were my favorite band. So yeah, that's, it was one night. Yeah, please. it was one night when the Damned came over from the UK. So it was the Damned and the Dead Boys. I think like either a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I think there were two shows a night. Once I got there in the evening, I just stayed. Right. And, and, and what? So out of all those bands, the band that sucked you in was the crazy punk rock Dead Boys. What was it about the Dead Boys that, that, that was like that made them your favorites? That made, you were the, 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 the head of their uh, fan club, correct? I was. I started their fan club with my friend Jody Rubello. You know, what did we know at 15 years old about running a fan club? So we made this one zine called All This and More, named after one of their songs. And that was really the extent of it. We just wanted to be close to the Dead Boys because we loved the music so much. We loved the first album, uh, Young, Loud, and Snotty. Uh, it was produced by Genya Raven. It's a great record. It was just, you know, that, that version of music just fucking stimulated my ears. I loved it. I loved the stage antics of Steve Bader's. I always say he was the bastard child of Iggy Pop and they had the handsomest drummer in the whole drummer in the whole wide world, Johnny Blitz. My man, Johnny Blitz. I love that. And uh, do you think that all the drinking, when when you started just to be a, a pillar of the community or be just like somebody who's frequenting the community, did the drinking like catch up with you? Did it become alcoholic drinking quickly or no? Um, well, the drinking, yes, the drinking uh, eventually did catch up with me, but it took a very long time. Um, I don't know where you want to first fast forward it to. I mean, I, I wasn't drinking every day, but if I went out at night, I was drinking. If we want to fast forward to me being 19 years old, <clears throat> excuse me, I got my first job in the music business at the Ritz. I love on that. East 11th Street. Yes. Uh, people now maybe know it as Webster Hall. A man named Jerry Brandt saw me in the building, asked me what I wanted because they weren't open yet. I said I wanted a job, and he thought that was humorous. He called me up to his office. We had to talk about music, all types of music, from the Great American Songbook to underground stuff and what was happening in the New York scene and on the radio. So he liked me. He said, kid, I'm going to give you a job. You're going to open my mail. You're going to get my lunch and you're going to answer my phone. And I thought, man, I'm in the music business, which is what this kid from Brooklyn wanted. And I was in the music business. Well, you were. You, I mean, not only yeah. were you in the music business, you launched some of the biggest new wave bands in the world on the Ritz. I mean, to see a band like Duran Duran or Simple Minds or Adam and the Ants or whatever at Public uh, Image Limited. Well, that's a crazy story. Why don't you tell the right. the riot story at the Ritz? Bow Wow Wow was supposed to play. It was a sold out Friday and Saturday. Malcolm McLaren called me and said, "We're not coming." I said, "Why not?" He said, "Annabella's mother won't let her come to the United States. She's underage." I said, "Malcolm, you booked this show months ago, and she was still underage. So, like, what happened?" We'll pay for her mom to come here. He said, nope, we're not coming. I said, well, send back the deposit. I don't know if he ever sent back the deposit. I had to think quickly. I knew Pill was in town on a press junket for Flowers of Romance, their new album. I called John, Keith, and Jeanette, and uh, they came down to my office. Little did I know what would transpire that evening. A full 
scale riot. Historic. People still want to talk about it 39 years later. Yeah, I, I, I expand upon that in my book. But the beautiful thing about that, if I may tell you, is that night launched a 39-year 39, friendship with John Lydon to this day. John is awesome. We've never had a bad word with each other, and I just simply adore the man. And he came, he, you guys became friends by you booking him last minute, and then he loved the riot. He thought the riot was this beautiful comedic uh, chaos that he oh, got to be a part we, we, of. Right. We were all laughing in the dressing room, even though it wasn't funny. And there was a kid, he, he had his, got his head split open, and he begged me to come into the, the dressing room because he loved John. So he came in, he sat down, everybody had beers, some <clears throat> illicits, and uh, we just laughed our heads off that night. But like I said, that kind of sparked this very long friendship with John, which um, I, I just, I adore John Lydon. Well, I, I love that because also the, the music business, you know, is so big and it seems to be so impersonal. But CBGB's was such a tiny community. The Ritz, you, you set it up in a way where, where you were friends with the artist. What was it like to be in that? So we were there with a couple of people who might have been older than us a little bit. But, you know, they were, it was a community and we all loved being there because there was always electricity in the air because we knew we were experiencing fantastic new music. Right. And when did you find that, uh, that the wildlife and the easy access to being young and wild and free started to uh, like really show itself? Right. You asked me that and I think I went off on a tangent. No, I was with you on the um, tangent. I was totally with you. Okay. I drank for a very long time. Uh, I did drugs maybe starting in my early 20s. Um, in 1983, I started a 25-year career in the music business. I mostly worked for record companies. Now, being an A&R executive, which means artist in repertoire, you're the department that makes those records, and they better be great or else you don't have a job. So I had to go out every night with the corporate card and... Uh, meet with managers and lawyers and publishers and artists. So I drank a lot. I don't remember when the cocaine started, but it did. Right. Um, it really didn't become, or I didn't think it became a problem until I was 32 years old. I was at Electra, And um, Bob Krasnow, our chairman, got phone calls about me, about how rude I was, about how I didn't show up for things. And um, he wasn't having it. He said, you know, do you have a problem? I don't think so. He goes, well, I think you do. And he was correct. So he said, you could um, go to rehab, or if you don't go, you could pack your office up at 5 o'clock and leave. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I, this is the job that I wanted my whole life, and I'm screwing it up. So I went back to my office. I cried. And... Um, it was a Wednesday, December, like around December 23rd, and I was bitching that it was Christmas and I didn't want to go, but I went. Uh, it was a 30-day program at Hazelden in Minneapolis. I stayed for the 30 days. I came out, and I didn't do anything that was asked of me. I didn't go to the men's groups that they, re they suggested. I didn't go to AA. So here I am, just 
angry that you telling me that I can't drink anymore. And I still had the same job. So I didn't drink for eight years. I was what they call the dry drunk. Right. Um, after eight years, at 40 years old, somebody asked me if I wanted a beer. I said yes. And then from 40 to 47 were the worst years of my life. Right. At 47, I became like a zombie. And I thought I have to do something about it. So I took some action. Okay, but let's before we get to this exciting recovery, we're talking about 10 years of your 20s where you're arguably doing some of the biggest work in your career and you're living True. you're living pretty, you know, uh wildly on the edge. But but it's not you you're not really feeling the consequences of that era. Like it's not out of control. You were not um No. No, I showed up for the work. I showed up for making of the records. I, I really, I kept my professional life as professional and on time as I could. Uh, but more of my personal life, it, I was starting to fall apart. I totally hear you, man, but I don't want to gloss over the fact that you signed Metallica when you were 24 years old, which is pretty sure. incredible. And, and the reaction from everybody was like, they could not believe that this 24-year-old kid found this band. And um, what drew you to them in the first place? Sure. I was already at Electra Records for a year. Uh, I met someone named Johnny Z. He had a very small, very wonderful label called Megaforce Records. He was putting out records by Metallica, Raven, Anthrax, Testament, all these young thrash-like bands. He was the New Jersey guy, right? That is correct. Yeah. They were putting out records, but they really didn't have the money to take these bands to the next level. When I heard Metallica, I lost my mind. Um, and I knew that I had to have these people in my life. Johnny wasn't happy with me that I wanted to sign them, but he knew that he couldn't take them where I could take them, being part of Elektra and Time Warner and a major label with lots of money. So in the end, his business affairs people talked to our business affairs people, and... Uh, Everybody walked away financially happy. Right. I, when I saw Metallica for the first time, I just knew that they were going to be huge. They were wild and crazy on stage. They were focused, even though people called them alcoholica. And I thought James Hetfield was the most charismatic live person, front man. He was wild. He knew how to whip an audience into a frenzy, and the audience loved every waking moment of it. And that's the short version of, and the rest is history. Totally. <laughs> and, uh, and at that point, you're, you're dabbling with Coke and you're drinking. Um, totally, yes, I am. And 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 what other what other drugs are big in the scene at that point? Like, are there a bunch of because the punk rock scene was a bunch of junkies? You know, heroin was everywhere. The metal scene was a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure, I was uh, drinking beer and vodka and Jägermeister, and I was I was taking uh, lots of ecstasy and cocaine, which later turned into smoking crack cocaine. And um, you know, I, I like I said, by the time I got to thirty two, I was really a mess. Right. And, uh, and, and how about the musicians? Like, for the most part, were the musicians you were working with uh, drug addicts? Were they alcoholics? Were they sober? Were, they, were you partying with them? Uh, uh, no, I, uh, I wouldn't. I, you know, I can't really speak for anybody else. I worked with extraordinary artists. What they did outside of my office or the studio 
I have no idea. Um, but sure, I would go out with John and go to Japanese restaurants, and we'd drink so much sake, it would be crazy. And of course, I used to take Lars to the trash bar on McDougal Street, and we used to get hammered. Um, but, you know, it was really, um, I don't know if the right word is innocent, but it was things that didn't cause consequences with me and the artists back then. I never let anything like that happen. Totally. One of my favorite things in the movie was you describing, you know, you were, you were talking about how some uh, gay hookup culture now is with Grindr or whatever, and you described how <laughs> gay hookup culture was back then. Uh, would you sure. mind sharing it with uh, the Dopey Nation? Why not? Um, so at one point, maybe around 1984, I was living on Washington Street, which was right near West Street, the West Side Highway. Very big um, gay area. Uh, the underground clubs and bars were there. The Anvil, the Spike, the Mineshaft, um, and whatever else was there. And there was a thing that... If the phone, the, tel- the pay phone rang in that neighborhood, you would pick it up because you knew somebody was watching you and they'd be like, oh, you want to have sex? And you'd say like, yeah, where are you? And you'd look up in the window and inevitably someone was jerking off in the window. And if you thought they looked hot, you were like, okay, what's your apartment number? And you'd go up, you'd have a whack, and then you'd go back home drunk. It's like it's like the nineteen. That's, that's, it's, it's a 19- that's what it was like. Right, the nineteen eighty four version of, of swiping left or right. Just come, put your that's head out correct. the window. I love that. It's so funny. And um, and so like basically, you were you went from you went from Electra to Geffen, and you yes. got to sign White Zombie. You got to work with Nina Simone. You got to work with Cindy Lauper. I mean, the list is pretty impressive. What were your who were your favorite people to work with? Every experience with an artist is different. My experience with Metallica and making their records were like, they didn't want anyone in the studio. So I only went a couple times because we were paying for it. But in the end, Lars was like uh, FedExing me cassettes of arrangements of songs. And that's how we did that. Um, you know, with Cindy, I would go to her house. We'd sit in her kitchen. We'd eat Chinese food. And we pulled out every blue archive in the world to get her record made. So the experiences are always different. And because I felt like I work with extraordinary people like a John Lydon, like a Cindy, like a Michael Giraffe from Swans, the experiences were all different and wonderful. So I, I guess I could say, you know, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world. No, I can't. Because I, I learned from the artists as well. I can't even imagine. I mean, the 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 level of artistry and and uh, and brilliance there is is off the charts. Which is why I'm also just so curious about Nina Simone. Uh, what a character she was, and she had a reputation for being, you know, I wouldn't say difficult to work with, but unpredictable. How was that? She was uh, unpredictable and difficult to work with. Right. Um, you know. I heard Nina's voice when I was 12 or 13 at my Aunt Jenny's house. My Aunt Jenny had great taste in music. Like, I would get there, and she'd be listening to the double, the double soundtrack to Shaft, or she was listening to Johnny Mathis, and she was listening to Nina Simone. Now, I didn't have the word back then for Nina's voice, but for me, it had this androgynous-like feeling. It captured, uh, captivated me, the sound of her voice. Fast forward, when I started buying records, I just loaded up on every Nina 
Nina Simone record that I could buy. Nina Simone is my all-time favorite artist, bar none. Nina knows how to interpret songs, whether it's Bob Dylan, whether it's George Harrison, and she... And she knows how to get to the heart of the matter of a song that you think she wrote the darn song. Her, her interpretations are exquisite. There was nobody like her. But, of course, she um, had a reputation for being tough, for being uh, sometimes a no-show, and just um, she was angry. Back then, they didn't know she was bipolar, so she drank a lot with her medication, and that didn't, that wasn't very pretty sometimes, but we all have these times in our lives. She was the most creative and the most beautiful person I have ever met. I love, and I was in love with Nina Simone. You know, we had a friendship for 15, 18 years. I got to sign her in 92. I made that record with her called A Single Woman. It's about love, loneliness, and loss with a 50-piece a orchestra. Um, and we stayed friends until her dying day in uh, around this time uh, in 2003. Extraordinary artist. If your listeners don't know about Nina Simone, please go to YouTube, pull it up, and you will be happy and grateful that you did. Totally. I mean, it's, it's just crazy to talk to you and hear the scope of these artists and that when you say you had a dream job, that doesn't even scratch the surface because you got to work with your all-time favorite people. And, and guide right. them, and, and they guided you. It's amazing. And oh, yeah. The other thing that it makes me think about is, like, when I got sober, I mean, my life fucking sucked. I was working in a <laughs> deli. My life was not uh, flowery or artistic. Nobody gave a shit what I thought about anything. And I think that, I mean, while you're pulling your weight in an artistic community, your addiction doesn't register in the same way because your currency is in creativity, right? Sure. I mean, isn't that it's it's interesting how like people can look the other way with artists sometimes as long as the art is good. Well, yes, and I like to say as long as the art is great. Right. Because there's a lot of good out there, you know? Right. People always wonder, why didn't you sign more artists than you did? Because, you know what? I heard a lot of rotten stuff. I heard a lot of good stuff. But I always like to say good ain't great. So I had to hone my skills, my listening skills, into what I thought was great. And I was grateful and I was blessed to have be able to work with the type of artists that we have just mentioned in this interview. Right. No, it's incredible. Um, and you described uh, that moment where your boss was like, you're too fucked up to be here and you have to go to rehab. It, 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 was, it was one thing after the other. I didn't show up one night for Metallica, I think at Madison Square Garden. I had my Polaroid camera with me. When they finished their set and got on the tour bus, there I was passed out. They took Polaroids of me and sent them to Bob Krasnow, our chairman. And um, that's, that's more of the extent of the story as well. And and that's when Bob looked and said, what is this? And I said, I have no idea. And that's when he said, you're going to rehab. So do you think Metallica was trying to snitch you out or were they just playing a joke? I think they were, they were pissed off. They, I was representing the label. I was representing them. And, you know, they didn't like my behavior. And, you know, in the end, when you think about it, that push, that nudge, got me at least into rehab. That's amazing. So that, that was your first time getting sober, and I think you said you had eight years dry. When was it that you finally found yourself wanting recovery? 
Finally, one Sunday, October 21st, 2007, I thought, I've had enough of this. I feel like a zombie. My mind hurts. My liver hurts. My st- everything hurts. My so- I was soulless at this point in time. And I don't remember what got me to take a shower and walk down to the village to a 12-step meeting. I, I, I went to the 12-step meeting, and I decided... I'm going to stay. And I stayed. And I'm coming up uh, in October, one day at a time, on 13 years clean and sober. That's awesome. Uh, And I still go to 9 o'clock meetings, um, Monday to Friday. And now, because of this coronavirus, we have Zoom online meetings, which is a blessing. I sit in front of the computer, and, you know, it's like uh, the Hollywood Squares. You see all these people up there, and everybody's there for the same reason. They want a better life, they want a new day, and they want to not drink a drug one day at a time. And that's what we do. I want to hear about your bottom. The bottom was... I could give you two stories that were crazy, and I'll give you a taste of them. But, you know, the bottom was being so fucked up in the morning, and in the afternoon, I'm in New Orleans in a crack den, and I don't know how I got there. And then when I leave the crack den, because I have no money, and they throw me out, I pick up this guy and girl on the street. They take me to a flea bag motel, and they rob me of everything except my boxer shorts and my sneakers. That'll be the end of that. And then, you know, infamous story, and I could laugh about it now because I'm alive and I'm sober, is I, I think, did I tell you I was on the street? I see a handsome man. I asked him if he wanted to come home with me because I had crack in my pocket. And he said, no, I'm a policeman. And so uh, he said, you're under arrest. I pissed on his leg. He threw me up against the unmarked car and took me to jail. If those aren't bottoms, and also I used to get in fights with taxi drivers because they wouldn't let me smoke crack in the back of their cab. And they would always inevitably come out with a baseball bat. I would be in a blackout. And In retrospect, I was grateful that I never pulled that baseball bat out of their hand because you wouldn't know what would happen. So those are bottoms to me. That, you know, and I thought that was like okay behavior. It's not. Fast forward, you ask me, did I have bottoms or what was it like being a dry drunk? I was just miserable because I had the same job. I had to go out every night, but I didn't want to lose my job. So I was just a frustrated person who could have taken care of all this if I wasn't so willful. But it took me a long time. It took me seven years, 40 to 47. And at 47, I said, I give up. Right. And here we are talking today in 2020. And what was the thing about, like, I know that when I first, uh, when I finally got it, you know, and I was in and out forever, I, I just was like, well, why don't I just give this a try? Because my life is so miserable. And I, and I did the same thing that you did is I just said, I'm going to stay. And I remember mm-hmm. I said I was going to stay because an old painter from New Zealand told me he was happy I was there and would I come back the next day? And it touched me so much that I was like, wow. oh, my God, I'm going to come back. You know, do, did you have mm-hmm. a moment like that where you were like, I'm just going to do this now? I'm so tired of, 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 of doing the other thing over and over. Maybe I can have a positive reaction from this. Well, like I said, I was so sick and tired of myself that um, I knew I had to do something. So when I got to the 12-step meeting, I heard people talk about their drunk experiences, if they were new in the program. Um, then you heard, you heard solutions for people who have been clean and sober for years. And I thought, oh, I guess I found the right place. And I did find the right place. Was that the first time you had gone to 12-step meetings? 
When I wasn't in rehab, yes, it was. So that's incredible. So it was like, it must have been. It is incredible. Tell me, tell me about like what it felt like to, to show up like, and feel at home in a place like that. Well, no, no, I was not at home. I went because I, I had no idea what to do. I had heard about 12-step programs, and I decided to give it a try. I was filled with fear and shame walking through that door. Right. But, you know, me, I had no fear and no shame when somebody saw me falling on the floor drunk the night before. But I had fear and shame of somebody seeing me walk through a door of a 12-step program, which was something that could give me a new life. So in my first uh, uh, few times when I got there, I heard somebody speak who I knew from outside the room. I asked him to be my sponsor. The first thing he asked me to do was, um, would I go to any lengths to stay sober? You know, of course, I rolled my eyes, and I was like, oh, God, yes. So he said, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And at first, I was like, 90 meetings in 90 days? And I did it. And that 90 days kind of signified, signified, is that a word? Yes. Uh, it kind of, you know, good, um, signified to me that I think I'm going to stay. That 90 days started getting all the toxins out of my body. That 90 days, I was relaxing. My shoulders dropped. I said hello to the person next to me, and the person next to me said hello to me. And that, those little acts of kindness had me just continuing to go back to the rooms. And like I said, I still go 9 o'clock in the morning, Monday to Friday. It's on Zoom. I have a routine. I wake up. I make my bed. I say my prayers. Sometimes they're my Catholic prayers from a child, or sometimes they're just a list of thank you. It's my gratitude list. I make my tea, uh, take a shower, and I walk down and say the serenity prayer as many times as I feel like I need it, and I get to the program. And that's what works for me every day, Monday to Friday. And we're talking about five days a week uh, you're, you're doing this practice. You're, you're doing what's suggested in order to, that is correct. to be free. I don't, I don't fight about any of this anymore. I am willing to do what it takes on a day-to-day basis, as we know, one day at a time, to stay clean and sober. And uh, thank God I don't have an urge to drink or drug anymore. I, I, you know, that was just, it turned so ugly and near death twice for me that I just thought, can't do it. Got to stop. And yeah. I stopped. No, it's amazing. With the help of the program and friends and, and, and humanity and kindness, I stopped, bearded. And when you finally turned the corner, like, uh, how did your family and your friends react? Did they notice quickly? How long did it take them to see a change in you? I don't know how long it took. All I know is that my mother, my sister, close friends and artists were overjoyed that I was taking care of myself and they all let me know it in a very kind and loving way and um, you know if I didn't do that I'm sure that I would be dead because in the 90s I uh, turned uh, I zero converted to HIV positive I also got full-blown AIDS I was on my sofa dying there was no medicine yet I still thought it was a good idea to smoke some crack and drink some beer and um, I had a doctor who saved my life uh, Barbara Starrett she was like at the forefront of medicine and I listened to everything she suggested but of course when I was literally dying and losing weight and couldn't keep food down or in and blah 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 I stopped all the shenanigans um, until I got better and she saved my life 
you know? But I really almost died in the 90s. And I guess I wasn't meant to die. I was meant to just be here, have a new life, and uh, be of service to other people. Yeah, that's that's crazy and scary. And I'm glad you're doing so well now. Uh, that's the Thank best, God, That's yes. the best thing. Um, do you think I that... I take my med, and, you know, right now I have uh, uh, a zero... Uh, Oh, my God, I just lost my brain just now. Somewhere, help me find it. T-cell. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, I take my meds, and they can't even find the virus in my body. It's at a le- like a zero level. Right. Well, that's, so that's incredible. If that's not a blessing, I don't know what is. Do you think that uh, the diagnosis was in any way helpful in terms of being sober? Like you knew, like, you couldn't live any way but a, like a... A good way, a you know, a positive well, way. Well, for early on, before sobriety, and knowing that I was uh, HIV positive, and I did battle AIDS at one point in my life, I still drank and drug. Right. Um, so I still didn't give a shit. I was still a willful young, not even so young, but I was a willful man. Like I said, until I had to surrender and give up that Sunday. And you never and you, and you never relapsed after that. That was it. I never relapsed. I never turned back. I thank God every day that I did not feel it necessary to go out and experiment like people say anymore. I was done. I was done. I was cooked. And I just didn't want any of that ugliness in my life anymore. No, I think that's incredible. And uh, and I really do appreciate you coming on and telling us a bunch of your story. And I know. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dave. I, I'm not I'm not done with you yet, Michael. If you don't mind. Oh, if that, no, if, it's okay. If that's okay. Um, it's okay. Because one of the things that I I read about and I heard in the film were so many people were sure that you were about to die, that you were on death's door, um, that you had you know you were wasting away and and you Correct. came back so strong. It was because of this doctor, uh, specifically the cocktail of drugs that that brought you back. Physically? Yes, of course. That, uh, yes, oh, yeah, I believe so. Of course, you know. Um, you know, at first there was a drug called uh, AZT, and my doctor said to me, Michael, as your primary care physician, and I know we're here in this situation, but I suggest that you do not take it. I said, Barbara, with these vitamin drips you're giving me and these pills from Mexico, wherever they came from. It was, I always tell people it was like Dallas Buyers Club. You know, we were all, the gay community was all filled with such fear that we, I just did what my doctor told me to do. So um, everybody, friends of mine, not everybody, but friends of mine who were positive, took the AZT and they all wound up dying. Right. I believe it was, um, it was uh, approved too soon. So at one point, there was a, um, an early antiviral that Barbara suggested I take, and it started to make me better. Uh, about a year later, I was back in my office at Electra. I was very skinny. It was the 90s. People still talked behind your back like, oh, he had AIDS. And right. I wonder, you know, ba, ba, I didn't care. I was alive. I was on my two feet. I was waking up, and I was going to work. Well, it's amazing. And, um, and, and how, how is the, the Zoom recovery meetings treating you? You're doing them every day. Are there things you don't like about them? What do you like? What don't you like? Well, you know, it's just, it, it's a little odd seeing everybody, like I said, in these like Hollywood Square type right. thing on the computer. But you know what? We need meetings. And 
and this is very helpful. So also, it's also another thing I don't argue with. I just sit in front of the computer with my tea, with my oatmeal, and I listen until I press a little thing called raise hand, and then, whoever, and, and then the, the chairperson um, calls on you in the order in which you raised your hand, and there's another one-hour meeting, and I do that, yeah, I do it every morning. It's a little strange, of course, but, you know, so what? So what? We're in quarantine. I got to do something with my life. So I get on a meeting at 9 o'clock in the morning. No, I think I think it's awesome. I, I, w- I did a meeting like that uh, last week, and somebody Wonderful. somebody was, uh, it was like a Brooklyn home group, and there were a couple of Australians in the meeting, and they were talking about basically touring Alcoholics Anonymous around the world through Zoom meetings. And I thought, yeah. what a cool idea. You know, do AA Very. in Dublin, do it in London, go to Israel, go to Madrid, whatever. I mean, it's such an amazing, it's free, and you can experience the culture and also know how united we all are in recovery. All over the world, that's correct. It, it's, pretty, it's pretty inspiring. I just did a meeting <laughs> on the phone with a friend of mine. It was just me and him. And we read from the appendices of uh, the big book. We read on the spiritual condition, and we talked about it. And it was a meeting because it was two alcoholics reading from the book and sharing our okay. our experience. Yeah, great. It was pretty amazing, <laughs> and um, it's magical. Like I always feel like such a fraud when I talk about how magical twelve step has been for me. Like I never expected it to work or change my life, uh, but it did. Did you ever find yourself second guessing it in the beginning? No, uh, because like I said, I knew I was at the end of the road and I needed help. Right. So I just, I didn't argue with the help. So no, I didn't second guess it. Uh, Perhaps I didn't know I wanted to stay in the early days, but I did not second guess it once I started hearing people, um, what they call qualify, you know, you're a speaker meeting uh, person and people raise their hand and share around the room what helped them. Right. Well, I think you're a great inspiration. I'm sure I'm, I'm going to have time to read your book once I'm not surrounded by my children. It is I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death, and the film is uh, Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The... Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. <laughs> the Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. And thank you again. On Netflix and Amazon.com. Yeah, nope, Amazon Prime. On Netflix and Amazon Prime Video. <laughs> yes, amazing. And uh, and also oh, you're doing you so much. you're doing photography too. You you have a, a whole. I take pictures. Do you love do you love shooting pictures still? Yeah, I love I love photographs. I love the stories that they tell. And now I'm just shooting a lot of black and white stuff on the iPhone and shooting a lot of things backstage, a lot of tattoos. Um, and I'm working on eventually putting together this little uh, black and white portrait book as well. That's awesome. So be, be on the lookout. And if you people want to find me, I am on um, Michael Anthony Alago at Facebook and the same name, Michael Anthony Alago on Instagram. And recently I've been doing a lot of live chats and they've been so much fun. Okay, right on, Michael. Thank you so much for your time and for your story. And, uh, and be well, man. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. So that was the great Michael Alago dropping some very interesting stories about how he got his shit together and found himself in recovery. Our next guest is not in recovery, but he's not a drug addict either, and he refuses to use his real name, so we will call him Simon. Simon 
had an integral part in, uh, in my own drug addiction. You know, I don't think, I, I didn't use daily until uh, I came across Simon. Simon, welcome to the show. Hello, David. So, um, me and Simon aren't nearly in as good touch as I'd like to be, but why don't you lay out the very early days of, of how we met and stuff? So, uh, Dave, I remember we, we met um, when I auditioned for uh, the, the, our 13 piece soul band in the first few weeks of college, and uh, I auditioned to be the guitar player. And uh, I think we hit it off pretty good from the, uh, from the beginning, and we started uh, playing in bands together, and we had a couple classes, I think. We had anthropology together, and we became uh, fairly fast friends through school. And, um, yeah, I think that's, that's sort of how we, we began to know each other. See, what I remember is that we were in cultural anthropology, and I felt, right. I felt like a total intellectual taking uh, cultural anthropology, and I met Simon who was a jazz studies major. And, uh, and I thought that was the coolest mix ever to, to befriend a jazz studies major in cultural anthropology. And we had a test. And, and Simon had his own room so he could practice guitar. And, uh, yeah. and he busted out weed for the cultural anthropology test. No, I busted out weed. And I was like, I think we're supposed to smoke pot before we take a test in college. Remember that? It was college, yeah, it was college. Yeah, definitely. Little room. And, and you know, Todd lived at the end of that hallway. You know, so we knew that's where we met Todd. Yeah. Yeah, right yeah that's crazy. We met Todd because Simon used to borrow Todd's fucking roommate's car. That's right. Todd had, Todd had, a, uh, Todd had a wealthy roommate that, uh, for some reason, was happy to give his brand new, you know, sporty whatever it was, car, to anybody that would ask him. Uh, so we used to, we used to, Todd used to get his roommate's car for whenever we needed a car. It was really actually a crazy situation for him to give their car to anybody who would want it. Do you remember what kind of sporty car it was? I'm going to say like like a top-of-the-line Mazda, whatever they were putting out in the 90s. I don't remember exactly. I remember you and me would cruise to College Town and buy records with that car. And stuff like that. That's right. Um, yeah. And I think basically, I mean, you were a big stoner before all that. I wasn't, though. You know, do you remember? Did you think your pot smoking increased after we became friends, or do you think it stayed the same? I think um, I certainly there was a lot going on for me in in uh, in college in, in high school. Definitely, you know, was into it into college. Um, uh, you and I probably took it to a whole other level once we got to college, you know, I think. Well, lay that out. I want to hear about that. I think, like, um, you know, you and I were both sort of hell-bent on experimenting and having, a, you know, a big, intoxicated collegiate experience. I think that was something that, like, we probably both wanted going in. And, you know, we would go out. We would go out into town, and most of the, the culture there was around, you know, alcohol and drinking and bar hookups. And uh, I don't think you and I were particularly well suited, either one of us, for for that for a million reasons. And uh, we, you know, we kind of abandoned that quickly and started sort of, you know, hanging back and watching movies and and, and working on music or working on music. We would play music, we would listen to music, and we had the band. And um, I think you know our our sort of culture sort of started to revolve around 
you know, the, the high-end herb that was uh, available in, uh, in Ithaca at the time, definitely. Right, the kind. The kind bud. Yeah. And, um, and, we, and, and, we, and we quickly, like, we kind of hung out with Todd and Ryan and DK, and we basically stayed as high as we could um, for as long Absolutely. as we could. Remember, you would, you would get in trouble from the RAs. We developed all the elaborate systems of, of getting, um, of, of, of uh, you know, sort of clearing the smell and the smoke out of rooms, that kind of stuff. You yeah. know, with the tubes out the window and, and all this kind of stuff. And then, remember, we, we got in, we had to do, didn't we have to do some kind of community service or something? You had to do? I, I remember we had that terrible job uh, that summer to clean out a fraternity house. I don't remember it being community service. I think it was that a job. That was community service. The community, you had a community service or something else. That, the job was because we needed jobs. That was terrible. We worked, we, we worked for the service master, remember? Yeah, it was a pay-for-labor thing, and they hired us to clean fraternity houses in Cornell. It was the worst job ever, Right. That was the worst job ever. The, the fraternity, the, Dave and I had to clean uh, one of the jobs. Like it was a cleaning service, so we got sent to different places. We had to clean out after a fire one time, and we also got sent to clean fraternity houses at, after the end of the semester, in, in uh, probably in May or early June. And I remember Dave and I had nothing to do with uh, Cornell Fraternity Brothers. We had in that. I remember those few days that we worked there. Um, we had to do things like clean their, scrape their chewing gum off their steps. And I remember, Dave, you and I on their steps with that, with like uh, these, with those um, scrapers. With like the scrapers scraping the gum off their steps while they stepped over us with their uh, with their golf clubs and told us to all have a best day. <laughs> that was quite a moment. That was. A wonderful moment. Um, Degrading. That was degradation in the highest sense of the word, or lowest sense of the word. And I remember... Do you also... What? Tell me. Well, no, I was saying, do you remember going down to the basement of that place where the floor was sticky with, with beer and God knows what else, and uh, there were all these side rooms, and there were red cups everywhere, and everything was... And we had to try to clean up after one of these disgusting, like, look like, a, you know, date rape parties and... You know, and uh, it was just, yeah, that place was horrible. That was horrible, definitely. That was a terrible, terrible job. And I think, you know, can you, do you remember the story? Can you tell the story about um, when we got busted in Ithaca? I think that would be a good story for the Dopey Nation. Okay, so, um, so there's a couple things that, that were going on here. We were, we were starting to, uh, to hang out and, uh, and get herb from uh, John. Sorry, I don't say his name. You can say <laughs> his name. Why don't you say his name? Say his name. Or don't say John, his name. For John Pohl, from this guy, John Pohl, who... Uh, John Pohl. What a name. Yeah, and he uh, he was a little older, and he had a fancy car, and I think he was selling quite a bit, and he was making a lot of money, and he gave us, uh, I guess, an ounce or something like that, and... Uh, we, it was you our don't, job. You don't remember the story. You know, well, I remember. Okay, so this, this is what happened. John Paul, old car. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I I ride I ride down to New Jersey with John Paul to buy for I don't know maybe a hundred dollars, uh, like a nineteen eighty four uh, Mercury Lynx or something where the with the front was being held on with uh, 
with bungee cords. It was a mess, but it drove, and I really needed a car. And he said if I drove down to New Jersey with him, he would sell me the car for very little money. And he, while he went to pick up his brand-new uh, you know, SUV that he was buying with, with all the gains from, from his, his, his dealing. And uh, I drove back from New Jersey to Ithaca, and one of the lenses fell out of my glasses on the way up. And I needed my glasses to see. And I'm driving <laughs> in Ithaca with no cell phone. And I couldn't find one of the lessons, and I got so nauseous that I remember the moment I got back to Ithaca, I got out of the car, and I threw up all over the place, right? And the next day, this is at the end of the semester, Dave and I were going to go, uh, we, were, we were going to visit Todd, I think, right? No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. Let me interject for a second. Sure. We were going to okay. visit Colin, and somehow one piece of the story that you missed, I think, was that didn't John Pohl get busted selling the Silver Haze? So we took, we got a pound of it off of him at a very low price fronted to us, the crazy silver haze. Wasn't that the story? I think so. That sounds familiar. So we each, basically, John Pohl got busted selling the silver haze, and we knew he had a ton of it. So he fronted us a pound of the silver haze, and we were each going to yeah. get a few ounces of it. And it was right. the end of the semester... And the Knicks were playing the Bulls in the Eastern Conference Finals. And you and, and I oh. was writing a term paper on a leading-edge yeah. word processor from, like, 1988. And the fucking word processor lost my paper three times or something. And you're like, can we go now? Can we go now? Until finally I rewrote the paper for the third time. We get in John yeah. Pohl's shitty car. I'm wearing an army jacket. That I hadn't... So I had license plate on it, but I hadn't done the inspection yet. That was the key, right? Because it was I only got it like the day before, and I had the license plate on, but I hadn't done the inspection. And you had, uh, you had, I think about eight or nine eights broken up in in an envelope that had my name on it that my parents <laughs> mailed me something in, right? <laughs> and it was sticking out of your pocket, and we got pulled over because the cop on campus saw that that uh, the registration of the place didn't match, so they were different states. And he pulled us over as we were parking. And I remember saying to you, Dave, walk away. <laughs> and you didn't walk away. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, you know, that's the same thing that happened with Todd. I was with Todd one yeah. time, and, he, and we got busted. And he was like, walk yeah. away. And I didn't walk away. And I had shit on me then, too. So I'm a fucking yeah, and idiot. Yeah, so you were looking over. So what you were doing was the cop was looking at my registration. Like we got out of the car. The cop was looking at my registration and my stuff, and I was explaining to him. And you were leaning over his shoulder, reading it over his shoulder, and he noticed the envelope sticking out of your pocket. Then he picks it up, and it's, it's got my name on it. No, he <laughs> says, he says, what is this? And I said, it's mail. <laughs> And, and, and he said, he said, well, I'm going to open it. And I said, we're, I was like, we're fucked. Or, I said something. I got yeah. really scared. I don't remember that. I also was wearing one of those army jackets that had four pockets, you know, two bottom pockets and two top pockets. And in That's one regular. of the top pockets was, uh, we had a, a small bong with us too. So we had the weed right. and the bong. And then, um, and in the trunk, I had, I had, we were, you know, what we were doing, we were delivering a plant that one of us had grown in our rooms, uh, to, I don't know, Todd or somebody else who was going to take care of it for the summer. And it was in the trunk and we were desperate that we didn't want them to find that because we thought that they would charge us with the weight of all the dirt or some urban legend like that. 
And you managed to talk them out of going into the trunk. I imagine to get away with that. I got away with that. I, I, we would not let them search it. And eventually, like, we did, we got taken. Remember, we got taken to the judge in the middle of the night, and we had to, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I rem- do you remember anything? I mean, I remember saying that I, I, I remember that you and me got in the car and I said to you, say we got it from a, a redheaded hippie on the commons. Yeah, yeah, you made up, you wanted to know where you got it from and you made up a story about a redheaded hippie. Yeah. Town, right. Which, yeah. which was fairly believable. Yeah, there's a lot of redheaded hippies in Ithaca at that point. Um, no, absolutely. I'm sure there still are. Um, but, uh, and then we both got suspended from Ithaca. No, I did not. Why didn't you? Why did I get suspended and you not get suspended? I withdrew. I think right away. That was that was made it clear. You know, I think so. No, I think we both got suspended, but we both got accepted to purchase, and we transferred. And, yeah. We transferred before the heat could catch up with us. Um, right. And we went to purchase, and we became roommates. And I think you know we both knew that we never wanted to do a job like that um, college fraternity cleaning jobs again. So we decided somehow that we were going to sell acid. Do you remember how that happened? No, I really don't remember how we decided that. I'm sorry. I don't remember it either. I just assumed we needed money and we needed a hustle. And we knew that if we sold weed, we'd just smoke it and we'd run out of money. And acid is way easier to make money on. Um, but we didn't do that. In, that wasn't, wasn't that not... Oh, we did that in Ithaca? I don't, I don't remember the details of that. I remember going home and working and then we had to drive because we were going to we had planned to live in Ithaca that summer so we I went I went home and worked and made the $280 or whatever that I needed to pay the fine and we drove I drove back up to Ithaca to live for the summer and then I paid that fine well what I'm talking about is that that uh I think I, I lived there too but I thought it was really boring so I wound up going home and working at Katz's and over the summer finding the acid guy in the meadow and then when we started up at Purchase, it became a kind of idea that we could make money selling acid as soon as we got there. Right, because we did need money. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, we used to get the sheets. Remember, we would go down to Central Park, and we would get the sheets from the dude in the sheet meadow. And, you know, we would spend 100 and, and sell them at 5 bucks a pop. Yeah. Right, but that, that was what, I mean, I remember you and me would go down to the meadow uh, from, right. from Purchase, and the dude terrified. was terrified. The dude looked exactly <laughs> like Carlos Santana. Uh, his name was George. Yeah. He wore a cowboy hat. Yeah. And the, the acid was really good, you know? Mm-hmm. And do you, I mean, do you remember, remember. Do you remember the tradition of leaving the meadow every day? I remember the whole thing. There would be cops, and then he would be looking, and then he would, uh, he would look, you know, he would, like, the cops would go one way, and then he would immediately you know, start distributing the sheets to everybody in the area, and then everybody would slowly walk off. And we would be, we would think on the way out that, you know, just, like, you know, waiting for the hammer to drop, essentially waiting for them to, yeah, it was crazy. But do, and do you remember what we would do once we decided we were in the clear? What did we do? I don't remember. Every time right? we left the park, before we got back to the car, we would each buy, a, a we'd buy a knish. Uh, from, yeah. from the hot dog stand. And we would drive back to Purchase, eating a knish. And, um, and we lived in the dorms in Purchase. And I remember yeah. when we were living there that they were, they were, like, laying asphalt around our dorm at the time. So it was the early, right. it was the early fall. The weather was still really beautiful. 
and they would lay the asphalt. And to this day, when I smell asphalt, I think about that. I think about. I I I immediately connect to purchase and those days. And um, you know, we we tripped a bunch there, and we sold a bunch of acid. You know. Yeah, we we started eating it a lot. You know, because it was there. Yeah, I mean. That, I mean, that, I never, I never over ate acid. I, I ate, I would, I think we we tripped basically every weekend until it was done. That was, I think, how we did it. Yeah, I also well, remember, remember we would sniff. Yeah. What's that? We would sniff little pieces off sheep. I never did that. That was your thing, I think. Um, that was me and John. Yeah. Do you remember um, the thing? There was a dude who lived on our hall. This dude who called it was Joey D. And he was this big weed dealer. He was a tiny kid, but he sold a ton of pot. Yeah. And I used to, I used to play him at NBA jams, and um, yeah. And we would bet on the games. And Simon would uh, come in to watch the games. And do you remember what you would do? Yeah. So we, you would be playing. So Joey was Joey was a, like sort of a rich kid in New York. Um, and he would provide herbs to lawyers and high-end clients and would brag about it and never went to class and no one knew what he studied and he would basically play video games and, and uh, move high-end drugs all around purchase. Um, I really don't know what he studied and if he ever went to a class. But, and he was right down the hall from us and he would just kind of leave a huge bag of herb for people and while they played video games. But so what we, but it, you know, he was kind of, it was way, it was a, it was a, it was a lot of usury going on, right? It was like, like people would use him to get, to get herb and get high and, and, um, and he would use them for friends, I guess, is sort of what it was going on. So David would play and I would, uh, I'd be in charge of packing the bong and I would occasionally drop some on the floor and then put it in the cup of my pants. Yes. And then at the end of the and then at the end of the session we would go back and see what we got. Oh man. And I I would gamble the acid against Joey D's grams. Do you remember that? I would do grams versus doses and he kept would, he, oh, would yeah. he would let me go double or nothing a billion times until finally I would win. Because Joey Dan, Joey D deep down was a nice guy. He you know, he was a sad dealer character and he got kicked out of purchase pretty quickly i think didn't he i'm sure yeah i, I don't know the other thing about purchase that made it very significant in the history of dopey was it was because of simon that i actually tried heroin it was me yes okay do you not remember this not really your buddy, who's been on the show a bunch of times, only under the name Jason, um, uh-huh. who was in a big-time band, uh, would go down to the Lower East Side and buy heroin for his band. And one time, he came to our dorm room on the way back, and we were like, let's try it. Do you Did not, I? I don't remember that. How do you not remember that? I don't. That's funny. It's interesting. Well, we all did the dope. For a formative year for you, formative moment, obviously. Well, I mean, I got sick as hell, and, um, right. and you did it, I did it, DK did it, and uh, I threw up all night, and the next morning I was like, I'm not going to do that again, you know? Right. And I didn't do it again. 
for a long time. Yeah, it was a while before you went deep, right? I mean, it was it was years. It was years before I yeah. did it again. Um, but that was like the moment it all started. And like, do you remember? Um, what do you remember? Like, I know that I wound up becoming this terrible drug addict, and you didn't. And what was that experience like for you? Well, it was super sad watching you guys like all sink into this, you know, over a long period of time. Absolutely. I mean, I, like, I always like you know getting intoxicated, but I always had a strong sense that you know white powders would be my downfall, would be anyone's downfall. I figured I could party as long as I stayed clear of all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so it was definitely sad. I remember talking with DK and telling him that, you know, he wasn't smarter than this stuff, and he was telling me he was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, but I, I also knew there wasn't much you could do to talk somebody out of it once it sort of started. So it was a pretty sort of bleak, you know, sad time for me watching you know, a lot of my best friends sort of descend into that. Do you remember giving me advice about it? Do you remember how I responded at all? Yeah, I, I don't remember if like we ever sat down and, and, and I just remember, the, you know, once I was talking with DK, I don't remember ever sitting down with you sort of one-on-one. -on -one and, you know, I think by the time I figured out that, like, you were too far gone, it was probably too late for that anyway. Yeah, because I was doing well, like, career-wise. You know? Yeah, you were doing well career-wise, and everything was always party, 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 you know, at your place in New York, and, you know, and I didn't, I usually just would go home before, before you know, before that stuff came out, right, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, overall, it, you know, it was bad, and, uh, you know, I knew it wasn't going to end up well for anybody, luckily you guys have survived, <laughs> um, you know, and lived to tell the tale when I was out, um, yeah, I, you know, I uh, I felt like I could sort of see it coming in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, you probably did too, but I don't know what, uh, what you could do about it. I didn't see it coming. I didn't. I didn't know. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into, which is the craziest part. Right. I didn't think I, I. I didn't. I just didn't. I didn't know. I thought. I thought I could handle it. I don't think I ever would think that I was smarter than it, but I think I probably did think that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely thought that you could dabble, right? And I, I kind of knew from being friends with Jay for so long that you really couldn't, you know, that there was no dabble, really. Well, you could dabble for about 18 months, and after 18 months, you were married to it, and that was it, you know? It's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. There's this, um, there's this show on Netflix that just came out. Um, it's a movie, a documentary about the psychedelic drugs. Did you see it? I haven't watched it. I did see that it was out, though. Yeah, I think you'll get a kick out of it. Um, yeah, I'll take a look at that. So, um, what else do you want to say to the Dopey Nation? You got anything else? Well, I mean, you guys are awesome. Um, I, the, the Nation is uh, like this awesome community that I've watched you develop, Dave. It's like it's totally turning, you know, lemons into lemonade if possible, trying to honor the people that we've lost. You know, um, obviously, I love Todd deeply. Um, and uh, it's hard to taste that he's, you know, that he's not around and can't joke around with us. And it's crazy. Um, it's a crazy thing. And uh, and that he got taken from us. I, you know, it's hard to take. I don't know if it's surprising. I guess that you know, but like, it's really hard to take. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember anything? Like what? What? Like if you think about Todd, what pops into your head first? 
Yeah, he was just like like he he would he would he would pump you. It would pump us up, you know. And he was fun, and uh, he was bright, and he was optimistic, you know. Um, you know those kind of things. Like you know, he would he would always be good for just sort of a positive a positive vibe, a positive energy, and and uh, you know, I mean, I know it wasn't all easy. Nothing was it wasn't all easy and roses for him either. And he probably had a lot of pain and things that he was trying yeah. to cover up. Yeah, but um, but uh, he was he was a really good soul, you know. Despite that, you know, he he had an addiction, and um, and uh, we, you know, I just, I just miss him, you know, like that kind of, you know, just 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 that, just just the fun. You know, he was a fun guy. You could call him for fun, you know. Like, don't you agree? Like, you would call him when he wanted something to be fun. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, I thought he was uh, he was like lightning in a bottle for fun, and it the it, the yeah. world is a little bit less fun without him in it. Um, Absolutely. Can you yeah. get that email I sent you? Oh yeah. Now this email is basically like just evidence of uh, of, of the dopey nation's reach. I'm very proud of this email, and I thought it'd be fun if you okay. read it because you live with me. I used to steal your underwear out of your underwear drawer. You knew me coming up. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah. Is um, there anything else you want to add okay. about about our our seminal friendship back in the day before you read the email? You want me to add, add what? Do you want to add anything about what it was like to be roommates and be so close and all that stuff? Oh, I mean, so, you know, Dave, it was great. It was great in general being roommates with you, you know, um, through college. It was fun. We, you know, shared, you know, awesome friends and music and supported each other. And uh, when you didn't do your laundry, you would steal my underwear and then I'd catch you wearing it, which was a surreal experience. Yeah, you didn't like yeah. that. I-, I thought that's what you do in college. Yeah, apparently. I, I guess I learned the hard way. Okay, read the email. <laughs> that and we're not even close to the same size, so that's pretty funny. <laughs> well, I made do. I made lemonade, you, if you will. Yeah, you did make lemonade. You keep doing it. Um, okay. Dear Dave, or hi Dave, I wrote you a nice review, but then realized you may not get it because I filled out, I filled it out on such a small podcast platform that only has 155 reviews. So I will try this again. First, I'd like to say that you were doing an incredible job keeping the show going. Thank you so much for your dedication and consistency. Every Saturday, I look forward to downloading the new episode. Don't be changed my life. I have used my entire life starting young and accepted the role of, and I've accepted the role of a lifetime drug user. Not only can I remember considering, can I remember considering treatment, let alone think I had a terrible problem until the end. I believe that life without drugs would not be a life worth living. I started listening to Dopey and, and the worst stories that were the main reasons I got hooked. It was just before Chris passed, and I decided to start the episodes from the beginning. By the time that I caught up, both Chris and Todd had died, and it really crushed me. I think of them often as an awful reminder of how precious life is. They were both incredible souls. I can tell you by hearing their personalities coming through the podcast that around that time I had my second child on the way. The recovery seed had been planted thanks to Dopey and more. More and more often, I was feeling scared of dying from use. I was scared of dying and scared of losing my kids. The last few years... Oh, say that again. He was scared of dying and scared of losing his children. And losing his kids, yeah. Mm-hmm. The last few years, I've been spending an average of $300 every four days on heroin. Also, a cocaine and marijuana habit. I knew how to hide my 
my uh, I knew I was I knew how to hide my use from from my from the kid's mother and had been lying for a while about how much I was using. I started going to NA. I found a clinic and was prescribed methadone. I learned the heroin. Uh, was, uh, was using was laced with fentanyl. I did the bullet, had the most excruciating detox of my life. I felt like I was dying and I, and I wouldn't end. I basically had to relearn how to live. Luckily, my kids went and stayed with my ex and I went to hell and back. Once I got through all that, I managed to keep my job and I've been on the methadone program ever since. I've had no slip-ups. Sober since February 1st in 2019. My family and I, especially my kids, Want to thank you, Dave, for what you do. If it wasn't for Dopey, my kids and everything, uh, my, my kids have an amazing dad they have today, and I need them. They need me. They love me to death, too. My May 6th, my son turned two. My daughter is seven. Seriously, I love you, Dave, for, for everything. I am a creator, too. I just had my second vinyl record pressed. I will have two records released since I've been clean, and I could have never done that before. I, uh, where are we? I, I, uh, I'm sorry, I would never have had the money. I decided to write it because Alan says he likes nice review. He likes nice reviews. So I wanted to let you know, you and Alan know that Dopey turned me on to recovery and saved me and my kids' lives. Isn't it beautiful, Dave, to be able to live the dreams we once had from one loving, thankful dad to another? Please keep rocking, Dave. Don't stop what you were doing. And you are making a huge difference in the world. Enjoy your beautiful family. I love the show. I would love to meet you sometime. If you're ever in Canada, come to Ottawa. And you can have a place to stay. Keep safe. Best wishes for Dopey and best wishes for the Dopey Nation. And fucking toodles for Chris. From Robin in Ottawa. Can you believe that? Isn't that so beautiful? That's amazing, Dave. It's fantastic. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to rub my success in your face. Blah. Congratulations. <laughs> Uh, no, I thought, I mean, that's a beautiful, I, re- I read that email and I got the chills. You know, as much as I enjoy making the show, you never really think that it's going to do anything for anybody. Um, and what a beautiful thing to have read. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's great. What was Wonderful. I going to say? There was something that you had said that, that I forgot. Um, oh, yeah. Do you remember what you were working at a school in, uh, in Westchester and I was trying to kick dope, and you let me stay with you while I was kicking yeah. dope. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah, for two days or so. It was bad. Yeah, you were trying to kick, and you wanted to get out of the city for a couple of days, but then, I don't know, two or three, maybe it was three or four days, and you just broke. <laughs> you broke, right? Yeah, I went home, and I got high. Um, and, yeah. like, how, how bad of a friend did I become to you? Did I become a much worse friend, or what happened? How do you describe that? Well, to me, I, you know, I mean, I, we just kind of dropped each other, you know, for, for many years because of it, right? And, uh, you know, we reconnected maybe 10 years ago, or more, 10, 11 years ago, you know, when your mom passed, and, uh, inter- you know, Facebook sort of came about, and I had my daughter, you know. Um, so there was, you know, a bunch of years, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven years where, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't really communicate much. Um, you know, and I thought that was just for the best. I was praying that you wouldn't die. You know, but uh, you know, obviously, I knew you were you were in a bad way. Yeah, but you but I never really became a terrible friend to you. You're saying I, we just kind of disappeared. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I would have. After a while, I don't think I just exposed myself to everything that was sort of going on, right? Right. I'm just asking because we never talk about it. I'm just because probably a lot of people out there have friends who become junkies, and one of two things happen. And I guess in our situation, we just stopped hanging out. Yeah, I mean, I just knew that. I like, I, I had a feeling. You know, if we did keep hanging out, I'm sure there would be issues, right? But like, like there did come a time where I was, where it just was clear to me that you know there wasn't much for me going on. You know, like essentially, people knew I didn't use, and like, we'd be hanging out, and I think people would just be waiting for me to leave. Right. Right. Yeah. So we could get right, and so you know, right, so uh, right, so you know, I, I think, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you, you came out on this end. You know, <laughs> you guys got you know, you guys are still here. Um, DK is still here. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, me too. I mean, like, uh, I wish we could see each other more, but I mean, you take what you can get, right? Well, yeah, we can't see anybody right now. So. Exactly. But Simon, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Is there anything you want to add before you go? No, everyone. To um, you know, there's a lot to live for. Obviously, um, not maybe not obviously, but uh, you know, um, you know, support Dave, um, support each other, support this community, and uh, you know, there's uh, what's amazing is is that, you know, how much light there is on the other side that everybody expresses and, uh, you know, focus on that light. Um, all right. Anyway, uh, love you, Dave. Love you too, Simon. If that's your real name, right. which it isn't. Um, and thank you for coming on. We'll talk soon. My, my pleasure. So that was my old college roommate, Simon. Uh, I've wanted him to come on the show for a long time. Obviously, his name is not really Simon. But he's not in recovery. He works with children. He doesn't want the fact that he used to sell acid and steal weed to be on the show. But I appreciate him coming on. Next, we have somebody who is in recovery. He helps make the show as happy and joyous and free as it is. He is a producer on Dopey. His name is Sam. Here he is. Thanks, Dave. Hey, Dopey Nation. So what's going on, man? You're excited to come back on the show. As I understand it, you have a game you've devised to play. I have, yes. Would you like to get straight into the game, Dave? Straight into the game, Sam. Let's play the okay. game. Well, it's not so much a game as it was. Uh, we took an informal poll uh, regarding the alternative recovery movement. Yes. I've heard of this movement. Yes. It's a fantastic new movement. Yes. And yes. So it uh, was prepared by the alternative recovery movement's general office in Skokie, Illinois, Dave. Okay, great. Let's hear it. Yes. So, so this was a poll that was sent out by the, by the alternative recovery movement to some of our favorite social media platforms, Scourge, Potty Mouth, and Heretic.com. I don't know what those things are, but continue. Yeah, they're fantastic uh, uh, websites and platforms. Are they real? They are not real. Okay. Uh, but they sound real, don't they? No. They just, uh, keep going, please. All right. So, uh, so this poll was borrowed. These po- this poll was based on slogans from Twelve Steps and Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. Right. And and th- and this game, this poll happened after Laura was on the Patreon episode, and you and her discussed your dislike, essentially, for commonly used AA slogans and phrases. Yes. Right. So we sent out this poll 
and using regular phrases, but they change the endings. And so what we're going to ask you to do is give us the original phrase. So here's the top answer of the phrases, and you need to give us the original phrase. Okay. Okay, ready? Yes. Okay, so let go and let Melissa. No, we're going to say let go and let God, Melissa. That's it. Yes. Yes, that's it. Keep the plug in the butt. No, keep the plug in the jug. That's right, Dave. That's good. Uh huh. This too shall sucketh less later. No, it's this too shall pass. That's right. This live life on Melissa's terms. Life on life's terms. That's right. Principles before those fuckwit asshole gas bags that share for 15 minutes about nothing. No, it's before personalities, Sam. That is right. That is right. God is an anacronym that stands for group of dopies. I think that could be a new one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that stand. You're going to let that stand? Okay. Yeah. We're going to bring that into the... Group uh, of dopes. Group of group dopes. Group of dopes. Yes. That's right. Uh, and finally, I'm sick and tired of this shtick. You're fired. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not into this game, but it's I'm sick and tired of being <laughs> sick and tired. Now, that's right, Sam. You've done. Sam does amazing work for the show. Besides this game, so if you like the game, please send in an email to dopeypodcast at gmail dot com. And uh, and Sam, you do a great job on the show. I have to tell. Thanks, you. Dave. Thanks, Dave. It's really fun. It really, really does help me uh, think about. Um, sobriety in a way that i'd never used to even when i had you know longer periods of sobriety keeps me engaged what and make, i love working with you what and make, i love working with you nice well i love working with you too what it makes me think is if that every struggling addict produced dopey then everybody would uh find recovery i i couldn't agree more i think it's something also that you said with with uh laura i believe on patreon is uh oh you were answering the question right about and your answer was to stay distracted, right? Definitely. So dopey is, yeah, working on dopey is my grand distraction. No, I think distraction is one of the keys to staying sober. I don't know if that's in, that's definitely not in the big book, but I definitely recommend distraction. Um, before we go, why don't you uh, read uh, a review, the dopey review of the week read by Sam. Radio. Okay, here it is. Yes. It's, it's labeled Heavy Binge, and it is five-star review. Five-star review. Five-star. I've gotten to episode 120 in the span of just a few weeks. I'm a normie with some light drug experimentation. I also did LSD before I ever smoked pot, just like Dave. But my fiancé is in recovery. He'd been sober since I met him, but he listens to the show a lot and, th- and thought I'd like it too. It is very surreal listening from the beginning, knowing that Chris died especially that he died from an overdose. Every time he makes a joke about it or talks about plans for the future, it hits me hard, and I don't know. It just feels weird. Hoping the podcast is still as great as it has been the last hundred or so episodes. Looking forward to getting through the rest. And that was from Shelby. Well, I appreciate that that review. Um, I think about that all the time when I listen to old episodes, how uh, how sad it is to hear Chris talk about his future and obviously him having to die when he died. Uh, it's terrible. It's a cautionary tale. I appreciate the review. I mean, it's, it kind of brings down your whole segment, though, doesn't it, Sam? It's not as cheerful. Well, it, 
It does and it doesn't. Um, Chris was, you know, you know, your friend. He, you started it together. I think about Chris all the time. Every time I'm helping you with the show, I, I, you know, I, I wonder what Chris would do. I wonder what Chris would think. I wonder if he would be pleased with the direction that we've taken this. Is he, you know, would he be happy with this? I think about him all the time, just like I think everybody that loves the show does. I think he would be happy. I think he'd be happy that nobody took his place because um, I think he'd love the fact that nobody could take his place. And um, I don't know. I think the the episode, you know, and something I didn't mention on the show that I meant to mention is that, you know, we passed over 100 episodes without him. And uh, and that was a real milestone. And, um, you know, I think about him every day and I feel terrible about what happened. But I also feel good that his legacy means something to so many people. It's meaningful. And that's really meaningful to me. Yeah, totally. So yeah. with that, I will thank you again for all the good stuff you did besides this stupid game. And, yeah. uh, and we'll say stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Stay strong. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desires all I ever had and my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had